All right, so uh, once again, welcome to our final class in the series. We've been talking all semester long about our church of origin experiences and how those things have influenced us, how they, they have shaped us, and um, how, how there are lessons from our past that we can learn that are still very relevant, <coughs> very active, very, very, uh, very much um, important in our present and in our future experiences. Uh, a friend and colleague from Lipscomb recently shared a story uh, with, with me that's appropriate for this class. And uh, he sent it to me, and I'm just going to read to you what, uh, what he shared. He says, there are more people influencing the church than there are people in the church. There can be invisible loyalties of members to people who are not members that can influence how they engage in the congregation. For example, I had a conversation with a member of the church I attended in another state, a Church of Christ, years ago. He was a deacon in the congregation. We were discussing the idea of instrumental music. He had a preference for voice-only worship, but also liked the idea of instrumental worship. However, when asked what he would support in a conversation with the church leadership, he was fiercely against instrumental music. When pressed a little on what motivated his resistance, since it was not a theological resistance, he finally said that his grandmother thought anyone worshiping with an instrument was going to hell. I was puzzled as I knew everyone in this less than 200 member congregation and I had never met his grandmother. So I asked if he was worried about our church having instruments when she visits. No, he said, she died 10 years ago. Not only did a non-member have functional veto power so far as this man's influence went in the congregation, this person was not even alive anymore. It was his loyalty to his deceased grandmother that was at work, not theology. The power, right, of our early developmental experiences. And today this question's in front of us, you know, what, what legacy do we want to leave? Right? When our generations have gone on, and there are younger generations, those emerging generations, that are, we hope, still active in the church. You know, what is the legacy that, that we want to have uh, that they recognize? Just a couple of points of review. So we split the semester into two main categories. We talked extensively uh, earlier in the year about the rules that we learned growing up in our systems. You know, what... How, how, what did we learn to do to survive? What did we learn to do to get by in the systems in which we grew up, whether those were our family systems or our church systems? And as I've said, today we're asking the questions. We've talked about rules. Um, I should go back. I didn't finish that thought. Then we, we also talked about roles in relationships, right? What did we learn about how relationships work or don't work from the relationships that we witnessed growing up. Our first 
influence on how to do relationship, right, goes back to our earliest experiences. So, we've talked about identifying those rules. Uh, we've talked about uh, what did we learn to do in terms of roles to navigate relationships. And today, I want to spend a little energy on what are the rules that we want the emerging generation to learn in church, and what do we want them to learn from us about how to navigate relationships. Uh, Mary Norton couldn't, uh, she's been a regular attender in class, she couldn't be here today, but she said, I, I, I want you to say that uh, next week, she told me last week, I want you to say next week, my comment on this would be, I'm so glad that this is my children's church of origin. And I suspect many of you feel that way. You, you self-selected into being a part of this body here uh, and fellowshipping here. Um, but this is a relevant conversation for all of us, not just for parents of young children or parents of any children. There is an ethic throughout Scripture of intergenerational transmission of faith. Right? You, you can read about that. You can go all the way back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament and the law, right? And, and that ethic continues throughout Scripture into the New Testament. We all contribute to the church of origin of the generations that come after us. Whether we are parents or not, we're all a part of this, right? We're, we're all a part of what the Hebrew writer called that great cloud of witnesses, right? So... To that end, uh, you know, I, I thought about a couple of ways to address this, and one would be just to sort of make a laundry list of all the things that we think church should be for the next, next generation. And there, I do think there could be some value in that. But instead of suggesting a long list today of what I think you need to be contributing or what you think uh, uh, someone else needs to be contributing to the emerging generation... I want to suggest a process. Uh, you remember several weeks ago we talked about process versus content. So instead of just a long list of content, I want to suggest a process for each of us uh, to consider here. Uh, there is an idea in family therapy that uh, is sometimes referred to as reparenting. Uh, here, here's the basic gist of it. Reparenting encourages people to discover the truth and the messages that they want to be able to tell themselves today as their wiser, stronger self. Okay, so, so in other words, there may have been messages that you missed growing up. Um, Maybe things that you would have hoped to receive that you didn't receive. Messages or truths that you would like to have been told about yourself, about your role in the world, right? Things that you would have liked to have heard that you didn't hear. And what reparenting suggests is that as wiser stronger, more mature, older versions of ourselves, 
We can't necessarily go back and receive that the way we would have from others as children, but we can still give those truths, give those messages to ourselves. Now let me caution you, don't just Google reparenting with no context. There's all sorts of interesting ideas out there. you know, extreme sort of uh, versions of this where, I don't know, you get in a diaper or something. I don't know. I'm making that up. But uh, that's not what this is, okay? We're we're not suggesting that we go back and, and act like children, right? In fact, quite the opposite, right? We act like the wiser, stronger selves that we've become But we think about questions like, what did I need that I didn't receive? Or what did others fail to do for me when I needed it? That maybe I can do for myself. This is one of those things that you do for yourself, not from a place of selfishness. This is one of those things you do for yourself because it makes you better for others. Not only is this good for your own continued and ongoing development, but it has a positive impact. If you're a parent, it has a a very positive impact on your children. Because not only are you giving yourselves the things that you wished you had received that, that you may have lacked, but you're also then equipping yourself to give those same things to those who are depending uh, upon, upon you. So it has a positive impact on your children, and the same process can happen in our church family. And uh, I was talking about this concept of reparenting once in a, a supervision session. So uh, when, when people are training to become therapists during the first you know, thousand or more hours of their clinical work postmasters, they meet regularly with a clinical supervisor to talk about their cases and, and to make sure that they're getting good guidance. And, and I was in one of these supervision sessions once with some supervisees of mine, and we were talking about this reparenting process, and somehow uh, the, the conversation steered toward uh, a, a client's early church experience. And one of the supervisees said, ah, could some of these reparenting concepts, what have we thought of these uh, in a similar way in the church uh, and and coined a term that I had not heard anyone else use? She called it re-churching, right? Uh, So whether we call it a reparenting perspective or a re-churching perspective, um, let, let me offer... Uh, what I think is a beautiful example of how important messages can be transmitted from a parent to a child, from a voice of greater maturity to uh, a person of, of developing maturity. And this comes from the ultimate example of, of a father, right? from, from the work of our Father, our Heavenly Father. Twice in the life of Christ, there is an audible voice from heaven. 
This is the part in, in a movie about the life of Christ where they get James Earl Jones, or if they can't afford him, someone with his similar voice talents, right, to say these things. And, and the first time we hear this is at the baptism of Jesus, uh, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And then later a similar thing happens on the mountain at the transfiguration, right? A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And if we take these two accounts and, and we look at common denominators across what a father is saying to a son, uh, at least three things, I think, emerge, right? This is my son. You're mine. You're mine. Not in a creepy, possessive, controlling way. In a, in a way that captures the sense of belonging between a parent and a child, right? You, you belong with me. We belong together. This is my son. You're mine. This is my son, whom I love. You're loved. What, what, what wonderful messaging, right? You belong to me, no, ma no matter what you do, right? We belong to one another, and no matter what you do, you know, no, nothing can separate you. From my love. This is my son. Whom I love. Uh, in him I'm well pleased. Or as, as the voice on the mountain says. Listen to him. The old King James version. Yeah, the way I learned it growing up. Hear ye him. Listen to. This is a father. Pointing to a son. Saying. This guy's got something worth hearing. Right? You're mine. You're loved. You're competent. We talked about this uh, some actually last week. And so if you weren't with us last week and you want to go back and catch the recording on the, uh, on the Otter Creek website, we talk about finding the competencies of, of, our, of our children, right? And I mentioned that, you know, some children's competencies are very much in line with what the world already recognize and law, recognizes and lauds, whereas others sometimes have competencies that are less obvious, but perhaps just as, if not more, uh, important. I, I mean, it, I can't imagine that any of us in this room wouldn't want to hear this from someone in our lives that we consider to be significant. Like, it's, it, these are such life-giving ideas, such life-giving words. You're mine, you're loved, you're competent. And when we think about, you know, what is it that we want to pass on, but what do we want the next generation to associate with their church of origin experience? Right. It wasn't perfect, 
It was, it was made up of people, right? So it wasn't perfect, and people made mistakes, and there were arguments sometimes, and there were disagreements, but man, I belonged, and I was loved, and it's a place where I discovered my giftings, my competencies. I discovered those, and I discovered ways in which I could uh, use those uh, in service uh, to, the, to the kingdom. Uh, let me stop for, for just a second. I don't have really a question. But as you're hearing this, any, any questions that you have or, or comments, responses, I just want to give a little space for that if anyone wants to speak to this. We started the semester uh, comparing church of origin experience to muscle memory. And you may remember I, you know, I talked about how, uh, yeah, that's some of you. Some of you came from a church of origin where you, you might recognize this uh, hymnal. Um, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in a liberal congregation like some of y'all who had songs in the church. <laughs> we had great songs of the church. Anybody have great songs of the church? Okay, yeah. Um, as snarky teens, we always called it great songs, the of church, because the the and the of were stylistically above them. Okay. Um, but, you know, I made a comment back on the very first day of class how... Uh, uh, you know, as much as we, those of us who grew up singing hymns, which I realize is not all of us, but those of us who grew up singing hymns, as much as we may love uh, some of the more contemporary worship music, pay attention the next time a hymn is sung out here. Pay attention to the volume, to the parts, the ability that all of a sudden, all the, you know, uh, I can find the bass again, or I can, you know, I can find the alto, that, that there's some muscle memory uh, and that, you know, church of origin is like that. There's a lot of experiences from our church of origin that are embedded within us, which is why we had the class. But recently I was reminded of this when uh, Anna and I uh, read uh, Beth Moore's recently published autobiography. And um, she talks uh, near the end of the book about uh, a significant experience that she had connected to one hymn uh, in particular. But before we get to that part of the story, I need to share a little bit of background to put it into context. And then, as a teacher, it's not normally my preference to read long sections of things, uh, but uh, this is so good, I, I think that it's, it's worth it. Uh, to give you a little context of what's happening here uh, at this point in her, in her journey. Um, this is happening around 2018, I believe. Um, in 2016, for, for those of you who don't know Beth Moore, don't, don't follow her, in 2016... Beth Moore was heavily criticized for it uh, in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape coming out. Uh, she was critical 
of Donald Trump, and she was critical of evangelicals that would continue to support him in the wake of his admission of sexual assault. And she took a lot of heat, a lot of fire from that. But she got through it. But then a couple of years later, uh, a lot of um, skeletons began to emerge out of the closet uh, and of her particular uh, denomination, uh, the Southern Baptist, and uh, about sexual abuse. And she herself is a survivor of sexual abuse. So this wasn't just conceptual to Beth Moore. It was very personal. And it's in that context that she says this. This one got me. I'd survived the 2016 firestorm, but I wouldn't survive this one. These dogs got through the fence. These dogs hit home and knocked me down in my own yard. These dogs bit. I might have survived it had it not been so personal. This mob wasn't from the broader social media spectrum I'd worked up three years earlier. Not this time. These were Southern Baptists, many of them pastors, and not only from the fringes. I could not imagine my life outside my denomination. I didn't want to imagine. Didn't even know who I was aside from them. I'd been disgusted with them, disappointed with them, frustrated with them, baffled by them any number of times in six decades, but that's how it goes with family, isn't it? And make no mistake, this was my family. I didn't want to leave the house. I wanted the Holy Spirit to come in the house. Don't let go. Don't let go. I said it to myself over and over. Don't let those people push you out. Stay and watch what God will do. Hold on. Hold on. So much life lived there. Butter cookies and baby bear chairs. Tiny white choir robes with big red bows. Running up and down the halls with my childhood friends. Walking the aisle and extending endless right hands of fellowship. The waters of baptism. 10,000 hymns. My grandmother her hats, and all her friends. Handbell choir. I can't relate to that one, but I get that it's important to her. Regular choir. Wadded up dollar bills and gold offering plates. A lifetime of Sunday school classes. Too many Wednesday night suppers to count. Missions classes, vacation Bible school, moving to Texas, all the first Baptists, summer camps, sixth graders, Young women, middle-aged women, older women, Bible studies, one, two, three, four, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. All my friends at Lifeway, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. My event team at Lifeway, my curriculum team at Lifeway, all my friends at Lifeway. Don't let go. Don't let go. I love these Lifeway people like flesh and blood. I love so many Southern Baptist women, so many Southern Baptist men, many of them pastors. To leave the SBC would mean leaving them. No, don't let go. Don't let go. 
That undertow pulled hard, but I held on harder, fingers laced, swinging around with the tide, salt water rushing through my head. And then it was simply, horribly, plainly, unmistakably, let go. And the current sucked me under and into the dark water and out to the middle of the sea. Okay, I want to stop there for just a moment. The point, obviously if we want to contribute to the church of origin of the emerging generation, we have to stay connected to the church. Now, does that mean that we always have to stay connected to the same fellowship as our own church of origin, right? That's where she's really struggling here. And, and I, I think, through a lens of, of differentiation, which we've talked about multiple times this semester, I think the point isn't necessarily staying or going. I think you can stay in your fellowship that you grew up in from a place of differentiation, and I think you can leave from a place of differentiation. In the same way that you can stay from a place of anxiety, or you can leave from a place of anxiety. Different content, but same process. This used to come up a lot uh, in, in my early days of work. I was a staff therapist at the University Counseling Center, and it wasn't unusual to have conversations with students who were weighing, should I stay in college? Is this right for me? Should I stay? Should I go? Should I hold on of this or let go? And I would always try to steer the conversation not to, away from, you know, they're looking to me to tell them, right? But I don't have to live with the consequences of their decision either way, right? And so I would try to steer the conversation to help me understand, you know, what, what's underneath the surface if you go, why would you go? If you stay, why would you stay? Because, you know, you can stay in school from a place of differentiation, a place of knowing yourself and having a clear sense of self and having a tolerance for difficult things, for adversity. You can stay. But you can also stay in school from a place of anxiety. What would people say about me? What would the folks back home say if I left? You can leave school from a place of differentiation. This is not who I am. This is not my path. I know who I am and I know that there's this path that I want to follow and right now it doesn't keep me here in school. You can leave school from a place of anxiety. This is hard. Hard doesn't feel good. So that's what I mean when I say it's not necessarily the leaving or the staying as much as it is the congruence between that decision and the degree to which you know yourself, right? Which brings us back to Beth Moore's experience here. I'm skipping ahead. She says, for the first time in my life, I didn't have a home church. 
didn't have a clue where to go. To Keith, her husband, who's always been a little less invested in church than she was. To Keith, this meant we were footloose. And what could be better than footloose? To me, this meant we were legless, harborless, detached. No place nor people of faith we could call our own. The yearning to belong is woven into the human fabric. And we had nowhere that we belonged. So as her journey continues, they find themselves in a very different setting than the one in which she grew up. If you know anything about the Southern Baptist tradition and you know anything about the Anglican tradition, you understand that there are some significant uh, differences in, uh, in that experience, including the liturgy on Sunday morning. She and Keith find themselves at this Anglican church, a church that they eventually become very uh, connected to. But I'm picking up her account here. She's talking about something that surprises her in the midst of the liturgy. She says, I recognize the song four notes in. Middle C, F, A, treble C. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I closed my eyes and mouthed the words the wind of the Spirit picked up in my imagination and blew year after year from old wall calendars, ink-smeared pages, tearing, whipping, and tumbling from the scene, the breeze dying down right around June 1966. There we were again in my imagination, all of us on our feet in the sanctuary of First Baptist Church, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. <coughs> Nanny and her friends in their pillbox hats. Mom and dad, my brothers and sisters and me, nine years old. My Sunday school teacher, yonder to the right. <laughs> my choir teacher, front center in the law. Brother Reeves standing in front of his fancy tall chair with the red velvet cushioned inserts. Helwin Raymer, our minister of music, holding a hymnal in his right hand and keeping the tempo in his left. We were all singing with our hymnals wide open, but who needed them anyway? When darkness fails this lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Swept back vividly in my memories to First Baptist Church, sitting squarely and consciously on the pew of this Anglican church, it occurred to me how firmly I'd been held and how fittingly maneuvered. Through a chain of endless storms, pocked by furious tornadoes, my sanity mocked in the darkest of nights, Jesus had held. I knew no truer truth in all my life than the profession of faith I'd made public at nine years old. I kept mouthing the words, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. I hadn't drowned. Even when I let go and gave myself wholly to the undertow and was swept into the heart of the sea, his hand was wrapped around me. 
Though the waves roared and tempests raged, at no time was I adrift from his presence. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. All that shame I'd felt. All that time I was so sure everyone could see all that had been done to me and all that I had done. The God who sees, who really sees, saw a beloved child. You're mine, you're loved, you're competent. Not an outcast laid bare in condemnation, but a daughter draped sublimely safely in Christ's righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'd track down the organist after the service and thank him for such an act of service, playing that Baptist hymn for this old Baptist girl. And he said how glad he was that I enjoyed it. Said he keeps the hymnals of other denominations and chooses from one every week in case a wanderer is in the house pining for home. (laughs) I love that part. I walked to the car nearly stumbling with wonder. With every step I took, it occurred to me with more startling clarity that somewhere beyond the clouds all was clear. Neither my pain nor my path could be reduced to mere consequences. Even the detours on this road were marked by providence. The travel atlas was out on my father's table. A route I could not see was highlighted. In the words of the great apostle, God was all along finishing what was lacking in my faith. Such will be the course for the rest of my days, come what may. And then she closes with this. My heritage, so precious to me, could not be stripped from me any more than my future could be stolen. God would see to his good pleasure. No trading in, no trading out. No such scarcity can be found in the spirit. I could hold on to all of it. Every last bit of it. For he who called me was holding on to me. I fibbed earlier, I said, my wife and I read it. She read it, and then we listened to the book uh, on a a car trip. I almost said book on tape. (laughs) You know what I mean. We listened to a car trip. I think it was right about here that both of us were, (laughs) uh, we were pretty teary. Partially for her, but also right for ourselves. Because so many of us can see some part of our own story in what she shares there. You know, I've referenced multiple times uh, this semester Murray Bowen, uh, the, the great family therapist just from Waverly, Tennessee, of all places. We, I, I've, I've talked about his concepts throughout this semester. 
But one of my, I, I think, favorite things that Murray Bowen ever said is that which is created in a relationship can be fixed in a relationship. Now sometimes it can't be the same original relationship because those people may not even still be in our lives even on this earth. But that which is broken in relationship can be fixed in relationship. And I think the reason this speaks to me so much is that, you know, however famously Bowen said this for those in the field who know him, Jesus more, more famously said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Je- Law before Moe Bowen was talking about the power of the context of relationship. Jesus knew that. And, you know, we spent so much time this semester in Galatians, I thought it was good to revisit uh, something that Paul shares when he's making the point to the Galatians. And uh, I just want, I'm so thankful for George and his part in this class and, and bringing his perspective as a theologian to understanding the story of Galatians and... Um, we're not having theology questions today for a reason because he's not with us. But I can read Galatians well enough myself to be impressed with what Paul says here. God calls you to be free, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to do what pleases your sinful self. Serve each other with love. Right? And then this... He's bringing this straight from Jesus, right? The whole law is made complete in this one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're mine, you're loved, right? You're competent. It's a context of love. Uh, While it may be for some people under some circumstances a differentiated move to seek out new community, community the body of Christ, is a vital part of the Jesus way. Several weeks ago, I shared some rules that were submitted in response to a survey that I had sent out. You know, what, what, were, what were your church of origin rules growing up? And we enjoyed looking at some of those, and uh, some were uh, lighthearted, and, and some were uh, a little more challenging for us to hear but the folks who responded to that survey in an open, I, I put an open field in there for, for them to sort of add the context, anything else they wanted to say. And some of the additional comments that were offered, some of them were very positive about their church experience. Others were, uh, were more painful. As we close, just let me give you an example of each. Uh, a, a very positive comment that I received. I cannot think of anything more that could have been done to be more encouraging to me to follow the Lord. We were a community, a family. Which, of course, is what all of us want, right? For ourselves and for for the generations that are coming behind it. But there were also more painful comments like this one. And and this, this one came from a mental health professional. She said, as to the mental health implications of all this, there is no doubt that many of our folks have been crippled by debilitating, wrong-headed theological miscues. Some have been devastated by blistering legalism, never to recover, walking out of our churches, and ultimately walking away from God, never to return. 
Many have lived with shame and guilt, with no refuge and grace to turn to. I weep for these precious, broken souls. So there's positive, there's painful. Looking backward at our personal experiences, as we have done over the course of this class, is helpful as we look forward. Both in changing our own behavior and in influencing the emerging generation. We seek to build on the positive, learn from the painful, realizing how powerful both can be for future generations. Thank you so much for your uh, regular attendance it's, uh, and for the feedback that many of you have offered over the course of the semester. Some of the things you have said have gone right back in to classes in following weeks. And if you have uh, more feedback, uh, you feel free to reach out to me, dave.morgan at lipscomb.edu. Would love to keep the conversation going. Thank you.